Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida. I hope you enjoy the following interview. And if you have any ideas for books, please drop me a line on my website at plantspeoplelove.com. This is Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida with New Books in Architecture, a special mini-series in landscape architecture. The book today is Lawrence Halprin. The author is Kenneth Halpan, and it was published by the University of Georgia Press in 2017. Hi, Kenny. Welcome to the show. Hi, a pleasure to be here. Uh, so, Kenny, uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Okay, uh, my name is Kenny Halpan. I am now a recently retired uh, professor of landscape architecture. I'm the Philip H. Knight Professor of Landscape Architecture at the University of Oregon, where I've been teaching since 1974. Um, I grew up in New York City. I went to Brandeis University, studied political science, then Harvard Graduate School of Design, studied landscape architecture, practiced a bit in San Francisco, taught for several years at Ball State in Muncie, Indiana, and then I've been teaching in Oregon uh, ever since, teaching design, uh, as well as a whole series of courses in the history, literature, and theory of landscape architecture. Um, so what was your motivation for writing this book? Uh, well, the motivation was I was, I was asked to write it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a series that the, the Library of American Landscape History uh, began on modern American landscape architects, uh, all of whom were deceased. So it's not contemporary designers. Uh, and I was asked to do the Halpern, the Halpern book. And I think I was asked based on the, based on the fact that when Halpern died a few years ago, uh, at Dumbarton Oaks and then Landscape Journal, which I had been the previous editor of, did a special issue about Halpern, and there was a series of articles. And I wrote an article about Halpern's work in Israel. I have a kind of parallel life. I've been teaching in Israel since 1980, so I was very familiar with Halpern's work there and had written about it and knew all the people involved with it. And I think based on that writing, I was asked to do the Halpern volume. Uh, that was the mo- their motivation. My motivation was one of the reasons I wanted to be a la- this one of the people who inspired me to become a landscape architect was Larry Halperin. So it to me was a kind of wonderful kind of circle coming back to that. Uh, why was he your inspiration? Uh, well, the book explains it. I think I think uh, when I went to I went to grad school beginning in 1968, graduated in 1972. Uh, in the 1960s, there was tremendously exciting things happening in American cities and in terms of landscape design. Uh, And Halpern, to my mind, was one of the leaders, certainly, if not the leader, one of the leaders of that movement. The work he was doing was tremendously exciting. He was an outspoken proponent for landscape architecture, an outspoken proponent for the kind of values of design and the city, uh, and a kind of beginning in kind of environmentalism. Um, and I had visited or began to visit many of the sites he had designed, and, and I found them magnificent, as did many, many other people at the time as well. Especially, what did you learn um, about Lawrence Halprin that you didn't know before writing this book? Oh, <laughs> uh, lots of things. I mean, 
part of it had to do with the, the research. I, I had met Larry Halperin a couple of times, but it was not someone who had worked with him or in his office or, or knew him impersonally. So I was learning about him, you know, essentially secondhand. Well, several secondhand. One, I think I read everything he ever wrote. Uh, and he was, for a landscape architect, reasonably prolific. We're not that prolific of field in writing. Um, but I think I'd read everything he'd ever wrote. And I also spent a great deal of time in the archives of his work, which are the university, architecture archives at the University of Pennsylvania. And among other things, Halpern was famous for keeping a series of notebooks, uh, some little portions of which had been published. But I went through all 127 notebooks that he kept over 50 years. Uh, and in that, I found amazing things and future researchers will find even, even more things. Uh, I found out that you know, the way he worked, the way he thought, the way he described places, uh, a bit of what inspired him through his travels, uh, what inspired him through the people he met and their ideas, how he communicated, how he recorded things, uh, and and later in going through the archives through specific projects, how his design process operated. Because uh, the archives included, you know, you know, multiple versions of a project, how it evolved. Uh, and all of that was uh, was was surprising. Not so su- well surprising was wonderful to discover and, and interact with. Um, so can you tell us um, a little bit about his career? How did he get started, and uh, where did he take the field of landscape architecture to? Okay, okay, fair. It's a broad question, but <laughs> <That's true. laughs> no, he got started. He grew up in New York City, um, and. Okay, at age, at age 16, graduated school, uh, then spent the next two years living in Israel it was, uh, and participating actually in a founding in a kibbutz in Israel. This is in the 1930s, an incredibly exciting times uh, in terms of the development of what was then Palestine and then became obviously the independent state of Israel. Um, he had every intention. Then he came back to the States and went to school uh, and actually originally had every intention to, to return to Israel and was studying Studied first, got a degree in, in plant science at, at Cornell, and then was at, uh, in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, um, actually en route to a PhD in plant science. And he met a young woman named Anna, Anna Schulman, who ultimately became his wife. Uh, Anna suggested one day, why don't we go out to see this place that Frank Lloyd Wright has, his school called Taliesin, Taliesin East. And they went out there and uh, he found it remarkable and remarkably fascinating and then came back to the library at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and started looking at books and came across a book um, on, uh, on kind of modern gardens in the landscape. And that inspired him literally to become a landscape architect. He went to talk to his advisors and they said, you know, you'd really be well suited for this because in addition to his science interest and general interest, he was actually a wonderful artist uh, and, you know, was a very serious kind of artist. Um, and landscape architecture was a kind of ideal combination of his interest, if you will, in the world of nature and the world of plants. And literally within two weeks, he was then at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. There was, that was a time when you could call somebody up and get admitted to school in that way. Uh, uh, without paying it a hundred thousand dollars, whatever. Uh, so yeah. he, uh, that was how he got into the field. Uh, and then at the grad at graduate school, this was a period, um, in the, in the late, the late 1930s, Harvard graduate school was, was in a process of change. Uh, Walter Gropius, who was the founder of the Bauhaus had come and became the head of the architecture department there. And he was very much inspired by the kind of collaborative activity 
that was happening um, in the school at the time. Uh, he then immediately could not get a job. World War II interceded. Um, and at the end of the war, he ended up moving to San Francisco. He had been exposed to San Francisco uh, and his ship, uh, his destroyer during the Second World War. Uh, and through a man named uh, the architect, William Worcester, who we had met at Harvard, through Worcester, got a job. Uh, he actually originally was going to work for Worcester. Worcester suggested, no, you should work for this man, Tommy Church, who at the time was really the kind of dean of Bay Area landscape architects. So that was his introduction to the field. Oh, well, and you talked about, before we go into some of these uh, projects, I had no idea I was reading through this book about uh, all the projects that he had done. It's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, His creative process and how it related to his wife, that there was a a dance stack. Um, One of the distinguishing uh, aspects about his work is his collaboration with his wife, Anna. Uh, Anna, in her world of choreography and avant-garde dances, is an equally distinguished figure. She's, by the way, 95 years old and is still teaching and dancing. I should add that, which is remarkable. In the re- personally just doing the research for this book, the most interesting and fascinating day of research was a day spent spent with Anna at their home and on the dance deck. Um, they built a house in Marin County, actually designed by William Worcester. And for that, he designed a dance deck on this slope in the middle of this forest uh, which became has become uh, a kind of pilgrimage site in many ways uh, for dancers. The collaboration was of several in several ways. One was a kind of personal and intellectual collaboration where essentially he adopted many aspects of the kind of language of dance and performance and music for his work. So he would constantly speak about ideas of, of movement, of dance, of, of choreography, of design as a form of choreography, of life in the city as a form of choreography, and most notably adapted adapted the term score, which was used in dance and used dramatically most in music, uh, as a way of graphically describing uh, a design or an experience and using, and it's now, the term has now become common parlance amongst designers, that you score a project and we, you score it through your drawings and your diagrams and, and anything you write about it. Um, and it's a way also of thinking about spaces and places and their design through time. So that was the kind of intellectual part. There was another aspect was in the, in the 1960s, uh, both of them were immersed really in, in um, the design movements and really counterculture that was developing dramatically in California and, and dramatically in, in, in the Bay Area. And as I wrote in the book, while they were slightly older individuals, they uh, they engaged the elements of the counterculture with a verve. And um, they did a, a series of what they called experiments in the environment, which were, were a combination of workshops. We now might also describe them as design installations uh, in the city of San Francisco uh, at the site of Sea Ranch, which he would ultimately be responsible for its design um, and, uh, and a kind of wild urban um, and natural setting. And these initial ones were day-long things and then literally month-long engagements uh, of individuals, of landscape architects, artists, dancers, designers, uh, in an experimental capacity of kind of creating places, trying to understand places, uh, and ultimately look for the implications of those things uh, in terms of design. Uh, Anna did these things also 
uh, as dance workshops exclusively. Uh, and Larry did these things uh, ultimately not just in California, but in other schools as well. When I was in graduate school, I was fortunate enough to, to be part of one of these, at least for one day when he was visiting. I was studying at Harvard, but he was visiting at MIT and got an opportunity to participate uh, in one of these. Uh, many of the the uh, the practices they did in these workshops became have become part of professional practice as a way to engage individuals in community, uh, engage particularly the public uh, as well as officials and uh, those and developers, etc., in in a design process. So, is it like a design charrette then? Some it is less like a charrette. A charrette. I mean, these things would lead to a charrette. They're more. Um, things that would, you know, in, in 60s terms, consciousness raising, uh, ways to kind of understand <laughs> your community. Uh, and, and, and at least in a very basic sense in the workshops, to understand some basic principles, not only of design, but the way people interact. Uh, they were the, the, the uh, workshops at the, the shoreline at Sea Ranch, people built a, a very famous, um, you know, kind of village essentially out of, um, out of driftwood. Um, people would experience places in terms of their multisensory dimensions, in terms of not just sight, but sound and feeling and and go on blind walks um, and engage the forest, engage the water and engage the city um, in, in in rather dramatic ways. And that was they they uh, they pioneered the, that activity. So it was more like the, the essence of, of what uh, people, how they move through space and interact um and then from there build a design? Ultimately, the implications of it would be for a design. Uh, but but it had, a, I think, even a more basic purpose, just to kind of understand yourself and understand, uh, you know, how you move and how you uh, kind of physically kind of in, interact with the world. Not all the participants were designers. They were just dancers, artists, uh, uh, other individuals that were part of this. It did lead ultimately to a process that he and, and members of his office described as a take part process, uh, literally where the idea of, you know, taking part uh, in the design process uh, and to democratize the process. So it wasn't just, you know, the designer top down, top down telling individuals or a community, uh, you know, what to do, but to try and engage people in that design process. So it might ultimately lead to a design charrette, uh, but it's preliminary to that. Um, in his office, yes, you were talking about um, his RSVP creative cycle. Could you tell us more about uh, his creative process in his office? When take part became that, that process of uh, engaging individuals, uh, ultimately he, uh, he coined the term using the, what he called the RSVP cycles. So RSVP is obviously a response to a letter and gi- giving an answer to things. So it has that catchiness. But each of those initials referred to something. Uh, so R, uh, R referred to kind of resources in a project, everything you would bring to bear on a project, the information, the data, the mapping, uh, the materials, uh, et cetera, all of that. Um, that. S was scores. I'll get back to that in a second. P was performance. I'll get back to the second. And V was a term he completely made up, which he called value action, which was the kind of values and leading to the action uh, beyond behind the uh, the project, most critical to my mind, and I think to his as well, was this notion between a score and a performance. So that ultimately the design is a score, 
a design, a physical design, a kind of layout of materials and spaces and organization, uh, however it's done in, in, in model form or drawing form or whatever, or in a computer now, that's the score that ultimately leads to building something or to something happening. P is the performance, ultimately what happens in a place. And for Halperin, the ultimate gauge of the success of a design was its performance. Uh, he profoundly cared about the prof- materials, profoundly cared about art and aesthetics um, and the look of things and the experience of things. But ultimately, how were people using it? Uh, how, what was that experience for them? And that was the performance, the performance of a place. Uh, th- that cycle sounds like uh, it's almost a timeless creative process uh, that could be applied at, at any moment in time. It could be applied at any time. It could be applied also at any scale. Well, that could be at the scale of, of kind of residential design. And in the early part of his career, he designed almost 300 private gardens and then then went on to do largely kind of public and civic work um, or, you know, to the scale of, you know, kind of river valleys. And he also did that, you know, worked at that scale. But most of his work was at, at the scale of what we speak of as site design, the specific design of, uh, of places. Yeah, I find that to be interesting because um... – when I was um, in grad school, uh, a lot took a lot of inspiration. My background was flute, mm-hmm. and you talk about you know the score. It's like I have a score, but then it's up to me to animate it, um, and and to play it and give it some some life. So I I thought that was really interesting. His uh, inspiration from from different art forms. Yeah. So you can imagine if you take that example where you're just a single individual, uh, think of it as more of the orchestra. <laughs> so that you know where you know in the sense the designer. The designer, to a certain degree, acts as a, as a conductor. Um, you know, he, it's not just him. He, he operated a, a, at one time a very large office of over seven. You know, began with a dozen people, became seventy people. Then later in his career, more of an atelier of about a dozen people. Um, but how do you orchestrate all those members uh, in your office, as well as all the consultants, as well as the public, as well as officials and money people and lawyers, etc. Uh, a designer is is orchestrating uh, that that process, and Halperin was a master, I think, in many ways of of that orchestration of of getting people excited about a project, which is really critical. You have to get a client, um, and and doing things that at the time uh, were in fact avant garde. Uh, the most dramatic example of that is uh, I live in Oregon and. We live in Eugene, but I also have a place in Portland, Oregon, with a series of fountains that he did in in Portland, which are now 50 years old, which are, you know, changed the way people thought about a fountain and a public civic space. And he got, uh, he convinced what was then a very, you know, conservative city administration to do that, uh, which they're now incredibly proud of. But the fact that he did that in a place like Portland at the time, it wasn't San Francisco, it wasn't New York you know, uh, is, uh, rather remarkable. Do you know what his secret was? <laughs> how, how did he do it? <laughs> no, he was an incredibly, um, charismatic individual, um, incredibly articulate, uh, and, and, and in fact, I think genuinely charismatic in terms of, uh, communicating and in terms of getting people excited about the things he was excited about. Um, he could, you know, viscerally, uh, explain that to people. Uh, and at a certain point in his career, he had an incredible track record. You know, people wanted to have things that Halpern designed, um, which is not, a, you know, happens 
when someone in the design world reaches a certain you know phase in their career, you want something that they did. Uh, and that obviously wasn't at the beginning, but he was very good at that. Also, I mentioned those 300 private gardens. Many of those individual clients ultimately played, became, you know, clients for larger projects, you know, for with the architect or people who were landowners or people who, you know, movers and shakers in, in variety of places, particularly in the Bay Area and San Francisco. So, so you just, you start small and then you work your way up. I mean, landscape architecture, nobody's going to give you, you know, like, yeah, you just got out of school. We're going to give you a thousand acre park. Um, (laughs) One of the first designs he did and very common for landscape architects and architects is doing something for a relative. And one of the first (laughs) designs he did was for his in-laws who had a house on the peninsula, you know, south of San Francisco. And that was one of his, you know, first design projects. Um, And that's not uncommon. That's that's true. That's how that's how we all get started <laughs> somewhere or another, huh? Um, so let's move on to some of his his projects. Actually, the first one I I want to jump to the back of the book a little bit because I have visited um, the FDR Memorial in DC. And can you tell me more about uh, how and why he did this project? Well, the how was there was there were several. Um competitions for the FDR Memorial over many years. He actually was part of one of the early competitions. The uh, national, uh, the government essentially had chosen a winner. They then didn't, the uh, the Fine Arts Bureau in, in Washington, I forgot the exact name of it, um, didn't like that. And ultimately there was a kind of smaller group chosen. Uh, and then Halpern was chosen to be the designer. Um, he was tremendously, he worked on this project for 25 years. Um, he designed it essentially in the late seventies. Um, and then it took until the 1990s for it to be constructed. Okay. It, you know, it was in the seventies and was under Clinton was president when it was, was dedicated. Um, his design and why he was excited about it was as he often mentioned, or for his generation, which would be my parents' generation as well. Uh, FDR was the president. You know, he was, you know, in his terms, it's the person who was president when you grew up or was president when he was, you know, a, a sailor you know, on a destroyer during the war. So it took on a tremendous kind of personal meaning beyond, you know, the political and civic meaning of, of doing, you know, such a major, a major monument and landmark. <clears throat> and his concept as it developed, the site was previously chosen he didn't on the tidal basin in Washington. That was a given. Uh, but his design, unlike uh, Jefferson, Washington, even Martin Luther King Memorial, instead of a kind of single grand statue in a pavilion or whatever, uh, he designed it as a, a, a linear experience. So the design is essentially a walk through a series of rooms, about a thousand feet long. Uh, each of the four rooms uh, refers to one of uh, FDR's four terms as president. Um, and each then he worked with and actually, again, through a series of workshops, cho- he chose a series of sculptors, each of whom would uh, had a mission for each of these rooms. And he had actually all four of them had workshops together uh, with Halpern to decide how the kind of iconography and imagery that would be presented within these spaces. So as you move through the spaces on one side is a 
is a, a, essentially a stone wall of a series of blocks. On the other side is a kind of green wall that looks out over the tidal basin, but you can only experience the, the, the memorial by walking through it. Um, and you begin by kind of prelude. Uh, there was a later piece added because there was uh, those who thought uh, that Halpern should be not have, that that Roosevelt should be represented in his wheelchair. So the, after it was constructed, there's another sculpture of him in a wheelchair, and Halpern did a series of workshops to decide where that was. And there's a large quote from Eleanor speaking of how his experience of confronting kind of polio prepared him in many ways for the presidency. And then you go through each of the um, the rooms. So the first room has a series of sculptures by George, the sculptor George Siegel, which uh, there are individuals on a bread line there. You can listen to a uh, uh, sit and essentially not listen to, but as if someone was listening to an FDR chat. The next room are all the uh, great proposals, the alphabet agencies that uh, – Roosevelt dealt with in trying to deal with the Depression, and they're kind of represented as a series of blocks and even, I've noticed, kind of hands that people touch. Um, and the next room deals with the, the Second World War, and there's a block that, a quote from Roosevelt, and says, I hate war. And there are quotes, large quotes engraved along the walls periodically. And in that room, there is a large, slightly larger than life statue of Roosevelt, which is about nine feet tall, uh, of him sitting uh, in, in a pose that was a common pose that he was photographed in with his cape and, and, and not oddly, but wonderfully, right nearby his a sculpture of his dog, Fowler. I mean, surely the only presidential memorial that has a dog in it. Um, and I was there very short. I've been there many times, but shortly after it was dedicated and every single time I've been there, what people do is they go up to the statue and they hold Roosevelt's hand and they have themselves photographed holding his hand. So now his hand now is burnished. Um, and it, I think that kind of demonstrated the kind of intimacy that people of his generation felt with Roosevelt, but people who had, you know, were not alive at the time. And then the next room deals with the kind of truncated his fourth, uh, his fourth term. And there's, Two things, one, a, a freeze by Leonard Baskin of his funeral cortege and a statue of Eleanor Roosevelt. So it's the only presidential memorial that uh, includes the, the, the first lady. And uh, I think it's a remarkable, uh, uh, remarkably effective. And I, I've spent days there watching people, uh, you know, come watching people, you know, move through it uh, and get both an education and a kind of sympathetic sense of the individual. Yes, I I have walked through there. It was uh, probably maybe 10 years ago, I guess, or so. I was with, my cousins lived there. And um, yeah, it was very solemn, but um, it was really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it is, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I didn't realize until I looked at your book, uh, I was like, oh, I didn't realize he was a landscape architect who designed it. Yes, <laughs> this i do know from from people who worked for him literally every single stone block there was m laid out planned full scale every single one they knew exactly the position of every single thing that was going to be there yeah it mm -hmm. was it was quite remarkable it's very different from any other memorial there on the uh on the mall 
Um, and very peaceful too, in a sense, it's very, very calming. Um, okay. I, there's another one I like to talk about that I, I've grown up on the East coast and the Southeast, but I have visited San Francisco and, uh, could you tell me more about, am I saying it right? I might be saying it wrong. Giraldi square. Giardelli square. Giardelli square. Yeah. Uh, could you tell me more about that project? Okay. Well, Giardelli square is, um, is the, uh, it was the Giardelli chocolate factory, uh, along the shore of San Francisco Bay. Um, so you have to remember, imagine kind of San Francisco, like other port cities in the late 50s and 60s, the port, uh, you know, boats are now no longer being docked there. It doesn't happen in New York, doesn't happen in Philadelphia. The ports have moved someplace else. Um, but you have these amazing kind of facilities there and also all the warehouses and industries that have grown up along there. So there was a series of whole series of canneries and factories uh, in this portion of San Francisco some of which were being demolished. And this one was actually slated to be demolished. And uh, a group decided to preserve it. And then a team was hired, and it was Larry Halpern with the architect, William Worcester. And they did really the first successful historic uh, uh, rehabilitation, adaptive reuse uh, of a series of industrial and warehouse buildings in the United States. Um, And it's kind of on a series of levels overlooking the bay. There's parking underneath. Some of the buildings were demolished. All the interiors were kind of gutted, um, but it was refurbished as uh, uh, the term that wasn't used then, but became what we now speak of often as a festival marketplace of shops and restaurants and entertainment. uh, And it was enormously successful uh, and still is enormously successful. Uh, It's part of now the, you know, like touristic route uh, of coming to San Francisco. Um, so successful, I, and this is something I discovered in doing the research, in London when they did an adaptive reuse of Covent Garden in London, they said what they wanted was a Diadelli Square for London. In other words, it had an international kind of impact and model, and I'd say virtually every city in America now has a version of it. In Eugene, Oregon, where I live, there's a place downtown that's a, you know, a miniature version uh, uh, of that place. Uh, well, that's interesting you brought that up because I did read your books about archetypes that he liked to do classic, timeless, um, and his projects are still, you know, like like you just said, uh, still standing and still revered. Well, there there are a set of projects that he did that, that at least in the, des- the design world, essentially have become canonical. And, and another aspect I talk of in the book, and I think it's really important, was he was a trendsetter. So this is, he did one of these, he didn't then do 10 more of them. Okay, I did that. Um, he did Freeway Park, which was the first park to cap, you know, it's the first building or uh, really a park to cap over of, of an interstate highway, something that's now commonplace. But it was an innovative project at the time. Uh, he did Sea Ranch, which was, was and still remains a, a kind of landmark, land planning, kind of environmentally sensitive project um, on the coastline. He did Nicolette Mall, which was the first transit mall in America in Minneapolis. Um, So in addition to being an incredibly skilled designer, um, the things he ended up working on uh, were pioneering. And he didn't then just go on, oh, I'll do four more of those. He then went on to do other things. He was very much in demand as as a practitioner. Oh, that's interesting. And 
the Yosemite Falls Trail, he uh, designed that too. One of, he did, uh, in the end of the book, I, I talk, the book, by the way, uh, in this series, there was a format for the books, a physical format and so on. Uh, a kind of long general essay, about 50 page essay about the individual, his career and biography and so on. And then I could do 15 case studies of projects. Uh, I should mention to choose them, I made a choice. Then I actually polled a lot of folks I knew who knew Halperin or worked with him or were other experts about him to decide what projects I should include. Um, and there was a remarkable consensus about most of them um, because many of them are now essentially canonical, the fountains in Portland and, and many of these others. There are two projects he did literally late in life, literally in his 80s, that I, I think are, are masterful. Um, one was he was asked to des- redesign the walkway to Yosemite Falls. Uh, it's the most popular tr- uh, site and attraction in, in Yosemite Valley. It's the highest waterfall in, in North America. And, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people visit it every year. And it, it was being, the, the land was being beaten, beaten to death. And he redesigned that. He spent several years working there. Uh, I spent days there work, talking to and working with the Park Service landscape architect to work with Halpern uh, on the project where Larry, and, and often went by just Larry, um, literally placed every stone that was there. And what I find remarkable in the design is how do you, how, he did something that didn't compete. You can't compete with Yosemite. <laughs> you, know, you wouldn't try to do something that's, but he used the material of Yosemite uh, the stone of it and the way he you, uh, he organized this progression towards the falls, almost like stations in a pilgrimage route. Um, and he studied literally the kind of stones that are there, their different configurations um, in getting there. And, it, and it's a kind of masterful project, I think. Um, and one people may or may not even be aware of because they're focusing on the falls. But from his very first drawings there, every single drawing focuses on the waterfall, recognizing that's what this is about, is taking you to that. The other project he did, one of his last projects was in San Francisco, a site, Stern Grove, which was a a summer music and performance site in in a park in San Francisco, which had been the performance place since the 1930s. And this was a, a a site that was, again, really kind of abused by overuse. And he was called upon to kind of redesign uh, this whole area and redesigned it as a, a series, essentially, of a stone, a meadow that leads to a stone, amp, stone amphitheater-like steps that then leads into the forest. Um, and I've been there perfor- for performances. 10 to 12,000 people can occupy this space. Or you can just go on a day and people are walking their dog there. Um, And again, this is a site where he literally placed every single block, every single stone. Um, So you have someone who is um, incredibly meticulous and aware of the and conscious of and and caring about the kind of details of design, as well as the kind of larger, the kind of larger concept. And here, dramatically, a place that was performed. For performance. That's its raison d'etre. And, and rather beautifully, literally just before he died, uh, Anna had dancers choreograph a, a, a dance, a performance uh, at Stone Grove in, in his honor. Oh, wow. Like through the, through the stones that he had placed in the project, huh? 
Oh, wow. So he was, he was really, was he one of the first ones to really uh, focus on ecological design in landscape architecture? He's not one of the first ones. Of his generation, um, you have individuals that kind of gradual awareness, I mean, certainly a kind of always a knowledge of the kind of primacy of nature and significance of it. Uh, But then the question of, of, of using the kind of science of ecology uh, he, along with Ian McCarg, who's the author of a great book called Design with Nature, it's a contemporary of Halperin, they were, uh, in their era, the kind of two, probably I think most, and many others do, I think the most significant design landscape architects of their generation. Uh, McCarg, largely through his writing and teaching um, and kind of applications of, of ecological principles. Halperin, dramatically at Sea Ranch, the Sea Ranch Project, which is this you know, 10 mile long stretch of the California coast that was uh, slated to be development and then became developed essentially in, into a, what became a second home community, but with half the land preserved. There, Halperin, and then working with others, working with scientists and architects and design, other designers, um, they designed a, a community in this landscape that preserved half the land, that placed uh, houses and, and buildings within this landscape uh, to, in a way that retained the character of the landscape. And when one is there, even accentuates it, makes you kind of more aware uh, of, of its qualities and this kind of rugged, very beautiful, dramatic, but windswept uh, California coast. Almost more like, it reminds me of like the landscape and then just pruning it to it's not, it's not pruning it. It was, this is a, you know, a, a dealing with design in such a way, if you've been any kind of windswept landscape, the way the trees would bend in relationship to the, to the wind here, the architectural guidelines suggest that buildings have that configuration, that the materials, uh, you, you know, no one's planting a front yard here. You can't do any planting. In fact, there, the structures are are organized in hedgerows and in clusters to protect you from the wind. There's large common areas that are that are shared and shared with the uh, in clustered areas in these open uh, open area, these meadows along the seashore, and then the entire project then goes into the wooded forest, which has largely been pre- preserved, and then you know structures and pathways you know placed within. Uh, within the woods, there's, you know, for example, there's roads here. There's no sidewalks. There's no night lighting. Um, you're as if you're kind of just dropped in to this place. I guess what you're pretty much right. We have just more. Um, I guess what I was thinking is more in context of the site and not um, like a disruption of it. Yes, exactly. He spent, by the way, several years just walking up and down and doing scores of drawings of this 10 mile camping on the site. And also he built his own cabin there and spent, you know, an incredible amount of time on the site through his entire life, continued to kind of draw the, that, that lance, uh, the seashore landscape from the view from his cabin, which is rather, rem- I've been to and is rather beautiful. Do you have a favorite Halloprin project? Uh, I think my favorite—that's <laughs> an interesting question. Um, I think initially my, my kind of favorite was, uh, and still remains, the fountains in Portland. Um, when I moved, even bef- when I first moved, even before I moved west, 
on my first trip to the Pacific Northwest, uh, on the list of places that I wanted to visit was Lovejoy, Lovejoy Fountain and what was Forecourt, now known as Iris Fountain, in Portland. They were new then. Um, they were incredibly dramatic and inspiring. Um, I was just beginning, actually, to study landscape architecture at the time, and I have visited both places, you know, literally, you know, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times, you know, and have watched people participate in them. And I, uh, I think they're they're endlessly fascinating and wonderful. So I, I have to say that's that's a that's a favorite. The other, I have two others. Uh, one, having spent a great deal of time, I have another life. I've been teaching in Israel since 1980. Um, Halperin did a project in Jerusalem uh, known as the Haas Promenade, which is this uh, originally designed as about a two and a half mile long uh, continuous walkway uh, that overlooks the old city of Jerusalem and overlooks both East and West Jerusalem. Um, and again, this is a project I followed since its inception. Uh, and it's it's a remarkable piece of design. Um, it's like Yosemite. How do you do something in Yosemite? How do you do something in Jerusalem uh, and not and not mess it up? <laughs> I, I mean that seriously. Uh, so he designed the kind of core promenade, which overlooks uh, towards the old city of Jerusalem, its walls, the Dome of the Rock, etc., uh, and then looks to the east towards the Judean Desert. And then it has two extensions that he collaborated on. One with Shlomo Aronson, who was an Israeli landscape architect who studied in Berkeley and actually worked in the Halpern office when he was a student there, and Bruce Levin, who uh, went and established a practice in Israel, uh, two extensions of this. So it actually ultimately became this two-and-a-half-kilometer-long two uh, walkway, which I think is one of the kind of great walks, now I think one of the great walks of the world. So I, that project is, is another favorite. Um, I think it's 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 rather wonderful. Um, well, just a little background. I'm a, I'm a re-emerging professional. This is my second career, um, and uh, for those of us who are um, entering the landscape architecture, what can we take away from Lawrence Halperin that we can uh, use in our careers and and our designs as we're looking forward? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Well, I think a lot of things. I mean, one is the kind of example of an individual who is so engaged. Um, I love when I met Anna Halpern, the kind of last thing she said to me, one of the last things she said to me, you know, Larry wanted people just to love landscapes, you know, as a kind of primary motivation. You know, the, so the the infectious enthusiasm for landscapes of all types, and I think the of all types is important. Everything from the most extreme wilderness areas, and he spent time in those, to the most extreme urban areas, and he spent time in those, and everything in between. Um, so I think that kind of just loving landscapes is critical. The other is learning your stuff. He was very proud of the fact he could say, I could do everything that had to be done in the office. He knew all about the plants. He knew all about construction. He knew all about design. Um, and he had experience with all of those things. Now, that's, you know, to aspire to be able to do everything is a little difficult, but to kind of recognize the breadth of the skills uh, that one needs or, or hopefully needs or, or hopefully needs to do, do that. I think he's, he's a model of that. The other, I think, is continually, and this I got from um, spending time with his notebooks, 
continuing learning and continuing studying. He traveled constantly. And I think travel is an essential aspect of studying and becoming a landscape architect, not just to see things in a touristic sense, but learning things constantly, looking at places, looking how people use things at every scale, you know, watching, is that a nice bench? What's happening there? Is that tree in the white place? Or how's this plaza working? Or how's this pathway working? You know, continually kind of studying you know, studying places, both ones that he designed, and he continued to go back to places he designed, but studying others um, and learning from them and, and learning, learning their history and knowing that. And I say that as someone who, who taught history, landscape history for 45 years. I think it's a, a essential. No, go ahead. <laughs> I think all of those things are, are critical. Um I often, I, I in my book, I anal- I think there's an, al- an analogy between him and and Olmsted. Olmsted is the kind of great figure who's one of the founders of the profession. One of the things about Olmsted, how do you become a landscape architect when there was no landscape architecture, no schools, etc.? And how Olmsted became one, I always found inspirational. He studied, he worked with the best people in in fields, he collaborated with individuals, he traveled extensively, he wrote. Uh, and and Alpern did, Alpern did this as well. And both individuals, and I think this is critical, engage the interests and passions of their time. You know, what are the issues now or different than they were 50 years ago? And I think it's one's professional responsibility to engage those issues, uh, and, you know, environmentally, socially, culturally, economically, et cetera. I think that's part of our mission. Uh, I think that's uh, great advice for... Um for not just emerging professionals, but for all of us. Hopefully, <laughs> yes. The other, I think another lesson from him is have fun. You know, he really infectiously enjoyed what he was doing. Uh, and that that's clear in terms of both the process of working um, and then in terms of, of his design. Um, I think we, I mean, as speaking as a landscape architect, I'm not speaking for him, it's a tremendously exciting and interesting profession. I think this moment in time is an incredibly exciting time to be a landscape architect in terms of what's happening in terms of cities, environments, and suburbs, um, in terms of the kinds of projects that people are doing, the issues that people are dealing with socially and globally. I mean, climate change is a landscape question and issue. Um, and if Halpern was alive, believe me, he'd be dealing with it. Yes, I'm sure he would be because it's uh, it's it's pressing here in South Florida and and everywhere too. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, you're an epicenter. <laughs> yeah, of that's it. for sure. Yeah. Especially yeah. down here. Yeah. Um, well, this. Thank you so much for your time today. I know we've taken up um, a, a lot of your time in this interview, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, can you tell our audience what are you working on now? <laughs> Uh, well, two things. I Okay, I, I wrote a, a book just before this book. I wrote a book called Defiant Gardens, Making Gardens oh. in Wartime, which is about gardens, not in, not in the home front, but during war, gardens built behind the trenches in the First World War, gardens built in the ghettos under the Nazis, gardens built by prisoners of war, and gardens built by Japanese-Americans interned in this country. Uh, and that book came out a dozen years ago, but it's had a kind of remarkable ripple effect. So the most recent thing I've been working on that is I've been collaborating with a Dutch photographer who's been taking photographs of gardens in Syrian refugee camps in in northern Jordan. 
as well as refugee camps in France and in, in North Africa. So I've been working, continued to work on that, uh, which is a rather profound project. Uh, then I'm also I'm working on another book project. Uh, I live in Oregon, which is a, a, a major in the North Pacific Northwest, is where most of the hops are grown for America, for you know, flavoring a beer. Um, and I became fascinated with the landscape of hops, um, not the beer. And I'm doing a book for Oregon State University Press, which is historic photographs of the Oregon hops landscape. Oregon between about 1910 and 1940 was literally the hops capital of the world. Um, and hops are this dramatic landscape. They're grown on poles and wires, uh, poles 15 feet tall, and the plant grows about 25 feet a year, and it's the a kind of most striking landscape. Um, and the picking of it engaged literally tens of thousands of people before mechanical picking. Um, so it, the, the book documents that and photographs of oh, that. Oh, well, that sounds exciting. You're going to have to uh, keep in touch. I'd like to see those books, too. Yeah. Well, both the uh, Defiant Garden, the first one is called Defiant Gardens, and that one, you can get that one on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today. I have really enjoyed this. And um, yes, as newly emerged into this field, I, I really connected to this book and, and these projects. It's quite fascinating. Um, so uh, thank you so much for your time. That's my, been my pleasure. And I look forward to hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Bye bye.